Hello, this is Rachel Zucker, your host of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This is episode 49 with C.A. Conrad. C.A. Conrad is the author of nine books of poetry and essays, many of them published by Wave Books. A much-needed, utterly unique voice in American poetry, they have received fellowships from the Lannan Foundation, the McDowell Colony, and the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. C.A.'s most recent book, While Standing in Line for Death, is a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. The nation's oldest and largest literary arts organization advancing LGBTQ literature. CA regularly conducts workshops on somatic poetry and ecopoetics within the U.S. and abroad. CA had just finished the last class of a mini semester at Columbia University on March 9, 2018, the day we recorded this conversation in an empty office in Dodge Hall. If you're familiar with C.A.'s work, I know you will love this conversation. And if you haven't read C.A.'s work, I urge you to buy their books and read their work before, during, and after listening to this conversation. In episode 42, Gabrielle Calva-Caressi talks about C.A. at some length, saying how impossible it is for her to overstate the importance of C.A.'s work in helping her think through her identity, her opposition to capitalism, queerness as a kind of practice, and her decision to become a more public figure. Gabrielle describes C.A. as an artistic, political mystic, and, while standing in line for death, as a game-changing, extraordinary book. I myself have not met a poet who has read C.A.'s work and not been changed by it. C.A. is extraordinary, and to engage with C.A. in their work is to rethink what poets do or can do, what poetry is for, to explore, as Gabrielle calls it, this rigorous poetics of healing. C.A. Conrad is the commonplace guest that listeners and patrons most frequently request, and it was an honor spending time with C.A. and an honor to bring you this conversation. Commonplace patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes copies of C.A.'s book While Standing in Line for Death, also A Roll of the Dice by Stephen Mallarmé, translated by Jeff Clark and Robert Bonono, of Mongrelitude by Julian Talamantes Brolaski and Royals by Cedar Saigo, all published by Wave Books, as well as Auschwitz and After by Charlotte Delbeau, published by Yale University Press. Thank you, Wave Books and Yale University Press. Patrons will also get access to a sound file of CA reading a new poem. It is the support of our patrons who make Commonplace possible, and we're deeply grateful to all of you. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast today. Or visit our website, commonpodcast.com, to become a patron, or to sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode, or to find links to the people and texts CA talks about in this episode. Even if you don't have the resources to support Commonplace financially, please know how much we appreciate your tweets, emails, and messages of support and encouragement. It's wonderful when you tell us you're listening, when you rate us in iTunes, when you recommend Commonplace to your friends and students. 
So for our next episode, we're working on an inside commonplace episode to celebrate that it is our 50th episode. And we're going to sort of turn the mics, so to speak. If you have a question about commonplace that you've always wanted to ask, email us at rachel at commonpodcast.com or tweet at commonplacepod or leave us a speak pipe message on our website. Let us know what you want to know. And now, here is C.A. Conrad. Okay, let's, let me just locate myself and maybe us. Um, so we're sitting in this office. I have a weird echo, so I'm going to fix that. Okay, that's better. Um, at Columbia University, you just taught your last class of the mini session or the mini semester, whatever it's called. We're both, um, I'm super excited to be here with you, but we're both a tiny bit low energy, but we're going to, we're going to just go it's with it. It's coming back. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and I'm feeling good. Oh, good. Uh, and it's interesting because I wanted to start kind of in the moment, in the present, um, because I always like to try to start that way, but also particularly with you, particularly with your work, because I feel like your work so radically um, attempts to be in the present and to bring um, the writer and the reader and the future reader and the and and the world, um, the animal world and the plant world into the present. Um, so I wanted to kind of start here, but I'm also mindful of the fact that um, people are listening who don't have a context for your work and I want to bring them into this present with us. So I also um, wanna go back and, and describe like what are these somatic poetry rituals, the way that you write is different um, than the way a lot of poets write and the way that different from the way you used to write. So I don't know, where do you want to start? Do you, should we start like in the real moment or give a little bit of background and context? What makes sense to you? I don't mind you? talking about the background a little bit. Let's sure. do that. So I began writing in 1975. And in the mid-1980s, I ran away. I grew up in a... Well, it is important to say where I grew up. I grew up in a factory town. All my family and everybody worked in factories working class uh, didn't encourage an educational literature or, or an education in anything for that matter and <clears throat> but my mother was in trouble with the law and couldn't work I went up basically I went up selling bouquets of flowers for her along the side of the highway it's the is it the uh, Quaker town turnpike exit in Pennsylvania hmm. From ages 8 to 16, I was doing this. So this is back in the 1970s and starting in 74. And what it did was it turned me into an avid reader because, there, you know, that's forced isolation every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for a child. This, this was isolation. I mean, there was, at the time in particular in the 70s, there was, you know, there was a toll booth for the turnpike, but then there was nothing around for miles except like a cornfield and... There's just nothing there. So I uh, and nobody read, and there were no bookshelves, bookcases of any kinds in anybody's homes, neighbors, family. It was, you know, they were literate, but they were barely literate, mm -hmm. and they certainly didn't uh, enjoy reading or encourage it in others. So, but I became a reader as a result of this forced isolation, and I'm very excited about that because by the 
next year in 75, um, as a nine-year-old, I discover Emily Dickinson. And now I'm not saying that I understood her very well, but I loved her writing immediately. And anyway, that's where it began for me. Did, uh, two, two quick questions. One is, um, do you have a, do you have any siblings at that time where you kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, you do. Yeah. The sister. And was she a source of, um, kind of social interaction with you or, or what? Uh, what no. no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did you find Emily Dickinson? Where, where? In the library. Uh-huh. Because I would go to the library every Thursday to get, to bring back my books from the week before and then to get new books to start selling flowers after school on Friday. And I started to get to know the librarian there. And and then there was this sort of asthmatic older man who would go in there just to read the newspapers. And mm. But um, he asked me what I was reading and he, and he said, well, do you know poetry? And I said, not really, I don't know. And then he showed me this book of Emily Dickinson's and that's where that started. Oh, wow. The slim selection of her poems. And then I wound up wanting to read everything. Hmm. And were you writing at all at that time yourself? No, but that was what spurred the writing immediately. I just wanted to write. So that's when I started reading and writing poetry. Hmm. And so there, you know, there's that, but also the idea too that... Um, I didn't want to, I knew that I had to leave this town for many reasons. One of them was my grandmother had in her living room, my Nana Conrad, a little shelf that had little pieces of artwork by all of her nine daughters and sons, you know, little drawings, clay pots, Mm. little sculptures, wire sculpture of a dog. And I was a little obsessed with the shelf because, you know, these are adults in my life and I'm was interested and I remember asking her I don't know what year I'm just making I think it's like 11 or 12 Mm -hmm. I asked her well where's the work they're doing now Mm. because this is just this earlier period nothing after the age of five is on the shelf and she rather um, she was often cross with me annoyed with me so she said they don't have time for art they're busy working so I realized very early that if I actually wanted to do art of any kind that I needed to leave. And I did. I ran away as a teenager to Philadelphia. Hmm. And it was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted to do. My life was great. It was also the middle of the AIDS epidemic. And so that plays heavily into my life at that time period. Had lost many, many friends. My generation, like I I feel like more than half of my generation vanished Mm -hmm. before my eyes. So that was very difficult. Um. There, the community around that involved everything from care and learning macrobiotics, which is a big study of the body, which later leads into the somatic rituals that I do. It's all connected. All of this mm-hmm. is connected. I was a uh, very dedicated macrobiotic practitioner from 88 to 98. Mm. And, then in, and then 1998, my boyfriend Earth is murdered. I'll save that for later. But I want to get back to the rituals. I... Um, so yeah, I ran away to escape the factory hmm. and felt successful in this. Uh, I was busy writing this book over an 18-year period called The Book of Frank. Um, it was altogether like 1,584 poems, and then it's all seriously reduced to this number that it wound up being in the book. Uh, but 
So, but the thing is, in 2005, this is where I want to get to. In 2005, I go home for a family reunion, and I can't, I can't really, I've thought about it a lot. There's nothing in particular that happens at this reunion that causes this epiphany, but it's on the train ride home that I realized that I turned all of my writing into a factory. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that cold, awful efficiency that the factory brings to the human body, the human being. Um, the way it physically attacks you emotionally and spiritually, it just absolutely is a rupture in any creative possibility. The odd thing is much of my family worked in a coffin factory when I was younger, and that was different. That was an old 19th century workshop factory, so you needed skills for that factory. You needed to know how to work with wood and fabric and metal and resins, things like that. And they were proud of those those coffins because they were making them and they were creative. But that, uh, during the Clinton administration in the 90s, of course, NAFTA just annihilated the working classes. And mm. um, so that factory went down to Mexico. Mm. And yeah, so then everybody started working in uh, more mechan more modernized factories where you're just an extension of a machine. Mm. So anyway, this was a crisis on the train right home. And when I got home, I could see it on my desk. I could see that efficiency. I, I have in one of these new poems this line from that is where I say, efficiency breeds brutality. And to be honest with you, we're living at a moment right now where it's never clearer. Amazon.com patented this technology that they're using on their employees right now. Have you heard about this, these wristbands? No. I'll send you a link. It's horrifying. Yeah. So Amazon.com has required their employees to wear these wristbands that monitor all their movements and then redirect them if they're – so it's this – it's like super surveillance of their actual physical movements mm. on the job to keep them performing at a level that Amazon thinks they should be. This is why the owner of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, is that uh -huh. his name, is the wealthiest man on the planet. Oh, anyway, I – um. I was horrified to discover that the factory had found its way into my work. And why would it not? I'm raised by these people. It's, you know, it's your, 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 your environment. But it was a crisis yeah. that was either going to completely ruin me as a writer or make me stronger. And having survived that town in the first place, having been outed in high school and having to survive that was great because it got me. I mean, I would not ever want to repeat that or wish it on anybody, but it got me prepared for other challenges, frankly. And so, and also surviving the AIDS plague and helping people through that. There were so many things I went through with that, like enormous number of crises after crises after crises that... Um, Although this seemed insurmountable in the beginning, it turned out to be anything but. But for the better part of a month, I did not write. Hmm. I mean, I took notes in case I did write, but I didn't actually write, you know. And for me, that meant like really spending time writing. And So about three, three and a half weeks into this self-imposed exile, I wake up and make a list of all the problems with the factory. Very long list of all kinds of things, the little sub-lists that come back in, manifold back into the original. But it really is 
a phrase that I'd written toward the top in the beginning that that was that changed everything. It was this this line, this phrase that I wrote, the inability to be present. And that's what scares me about my family. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense really because if you are busy being an extension of a machine all day, most of your waking hours, why would you want to be present? My family is generally when I speak with them, those who do speak to me, not all well, sometimes some members of my family don't really speak to me, mm-hmm. but um, they're either depressed about the past or anxious about the future. There's no present. They don't really, and they don't know how to shut that off when they leave work. So they're just constantly stuck in this place where they're not present. I realized that that was the issue. They're never there when they're there. So that's where the rituals come from. I immediately start building them. The first seven I did started that morning. Uh, I would eat a single color of, of food a day for seven days and wear that color. Hmm. So the first was the red poem. And by the end of the day with the red poem, I knew it worked, hmm. meaning a couple of things. One, that I was locating myself in this place of extreme present because I was eating only red food and I was wearing a red wig that I found at a dumpster behind a beauty academy near where I was living at the time in Philadelphia. It was half permed and half straight. And I mean permed like, psh, like really like frizzy permed and then the other half straight. So, you know, I was reading, I do a lot of reading of research on human behavior. And oddly enough, I think um, it's kind of creepy, but marketing research is such a study in human behavior. Hmm. And um, one of the things that I was reading at the time was that as much as 80% of human communication can be nonverbal. So wearing this red wig in public it's just reading body language all day. Like it's so odd looking. Plus eating the red food. But I also realized that by the end of that day, that the language that I had accumulated, the raw notes inside this ritual of being this way for a day, was language that there is no way I would have ever gathered of any other way at any other time. So it worked. Mm. It worked that I was creating this space for the poems to be built in a way that was completely new for me. And so I've been doing, I've done many of them. I mean, hundreds since then. I mean, this is 2005, I start doing them. So now in 2018, I have like a whole, well, I have, you know, many that I'm doing, but, and the new book that just came out from Wave Books, uh, While Standing in Line for Death, has a ritual that was completely different where I wanted to cure my depression. Mm-hmm. I had a very serious, low-grade, pernicious, all-encompassing depression that just was destroying me mm. i had a boyfriend named earth you mind if i just launch into no, earth no not at all <clears throat> i met him on the streets during act up demonstrations in the 80s and um and i had a boyfriend named tommy schneider who died of aids and he was instrumental in helping us with him for for so many reasons but then he and i be, become boyfriends and then in, in 1998 he goes to this queer community in tennessee to uh, to just relax. I mean, he was so heavily involved with activism. He needed to do this. And he was working in the gardens. He named him. He renamed himself Earth after all. You know. So he's an environmental activist as well as an AIDS activist. Act up and um, and while he's there, he discovers a cave. And he was talking about it with me on the phone, 
back in Philadelphia, and he tells me that he's been meditating in the cave in the mornings before going to work and how it's been helping him and how much he loves it. And he had this whole beautiful philosophy about being in that cave, like being inside the earth. This is somebody who named himself Earth, so he wanted to start every morning off by being inside the earth. We made all these plans that we were going to spend the night in the cave, and I was looking forward to it. And then three days later, he's dead. And the word immediately is suicide, that he commits suicide. And I just knew that was not possible. And he has an identical twin brother uh, who shows me, their names were Mark and Matthew. So Matthew shows me the death certificate where the words victim, the word victim is used and homicide. So I knew that this was, a, and so he's, he's, his wrists and ankles are tied together. He's tortured. He's raped, which we don't find out for, right away, by the way. It took years for me to find out that there was a sexual assault. And then he's drenched in um, an accelerant, gasoline, kerosene, lit on fire and burned alive. And as far as I knew from what I've been told, there were no empty containers on site. A four-year-old could tell you this is a homicide. Mm-hmm. But the police insisted that this was not. And the police were rather brutal about it. Not at first, but it got really ugly. So this depression sets in. I'm, I, you know, I was been macrobatic, was very athletic, such great shape. And then I just, my life falls apart and I start gaining weight and... But anyway, I wanted to do a ritual to, I wish I could do a ritual to make the police do their job and find the killers. Uh-huh. But that's, you know. But what I did was I wanted to do a ritual to climb out of this hole I was in, this depression, and it worked. I have to say I did two previous rituals that failed. Mm-hmm. I like the poems enough to publish them, but I didn't, I, I didn't feel any better. This new ritual worked. Do you always know right away, or does it take time to know whether ritual has succeeded or failed? Like the two previous ones, the goal was to is to was to come out of this depression, and that didn't happen. But when did you know this isn't this didn't work? Well, for most of the rituals I do, the goal is always just to write a poem. Uh huh. So I know if it works, if the poem, if the notes are good, and the I get a good poem out of it. That's. But in a case like this. I just, I didn't feel it any different. Mm-hmm. But I was convinced it could work. I was convinced that I, I was convinced that poetry could heal this. And when the second ritual failed, I realized that I just wasn't willing to go dark enough. Mm. That I wasn't willing, that I was too afraid to go to the dark, worst place. And what that was for me was uh, he, the last time I saw him alive, he gave me a, a small clear quartz crystal that he had been carrying around in his pocket for the better part of like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And what we know about quartz crystal technology and science and industry, which, you know, using crystals and uh, quartz in um, clocks and computers, we know the, con- the current is very consistent. We know a lot of things about them uh, scientifically. But we also know that they hold on to information. Extracting it is a whole other problem. I was convinced that I could glean it in some fashion. And I was very fortunate to receive a fellowship, a residency fellowship from McDowell Art Colony, where you just came back from. Yeah. And this was 2013? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
And what I did was I found that I really didn't want this crystal in my life. I hid the crystal from myself because when I would accidentally see it, it would just ruin my week. Not today, but like a whole week. Did Earth have the crystal with him when he died? or No, he no. gave it to me the last time I saw him oh, alive. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. It was this beautiful thing that he wanted to do to bridge this, you know, the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no interest in moving to this community in rural Tennessee at all. No interest. I mean, I'd been there a bunch of times in the past, and it was beautiful, but the, the local community really was resentful of these queer people taking up space. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to be queer in this world. Uh, there are very few places where you get to be yourself without being threat of being murdered, uh, frankly. But anyway, so, yeah, yeah, I used that crystal. I found it, and I would put it under my hair wrap every morning with the, with the, with the um, very sharp point pointing down mm-hmm. by my third eye, and then I would swallow a smaller, round, a soft, tumbled crystal. That, that, that was the worker crystal. That was programmed. I programmed it to extract his information out of his crystal and embed it into my bones and blood and tissue and nervous system. And it worked. Mm. And the way I know it worked was, well, first of all, I know it worked because I had this awful film in my head, this movie that I'd created, this fiction, where the police are doing their job and they catch the killers and there's a whole courtroom drama involved in this film in my head and this film was just designed to torment me really but it was, it was just all these unresolved issues and my anger at the police my anger at the killers and that film vanished mm-hmm. in a very short period of time with doing this ritual and it has not returned I've, that obsessive film has gone from my life. Mm. So that was the first piece of evidence and I immediately started taking better care of myself. Mm. I've been slowly losing weight and just feeling better and better all the time. Mm. And there is an actual film that's not the film that was in your head that is about you and Earth's murders, Earth's murder. Um, uh, That was made before the ritual or after the ritual? It was... um, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember where, where it fits Remind in. me who made the film. I'm sorry. Uh, I watched yeah, it. Belinda and I, and, Schmidt yeah, Belinda Schmidt and David Welch. Their their film company is called Delinquent Films. I'm really grateful to them. I dedicate the uh, new book to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they, they believed me that it was a homicide, which mm-hmm. I found hard to believe because the police, of course, maintain this ridiculous idea that this was a suicide um but anyhow um it's a very disturbing and beautiful film um yeah yeah, i'm grateful to them yeah so coming back to mcdowell for for just a moment i'm Mm -hmm. I'm trying to picture you so okay sorry i i'm my brain is going in two directions at once sure so this this ritual that you're describing um, is the first ritual that you include in your new book while standing on line for death. And the way that it looks in the book, um, there are there's a prose description of the rituals and then there are poems that follow. And um, you 
you often say in the rituals that you do the ritual and take notes for the poem. I'm wondering what those notes look like or the the kind of relationship between the notes and the poems. Can you talk about that a little bit? The end papers to the first book of them, A Beautiful Mercy Pill Afternoon, have the uh, raw notes mm-hmm. in them, which I like. That was Jeff Clark's doing, the designer. He, he suggested that, which I really love that he asked for that. Um, the way I take the notes is... I deliberately buy lined notebooks and then deliberately disrespect those lines. Mm. And I write as fast as I can at first to get ahead of that editor within. Because once I can get ahead of that editor, that editor is invaluable. I mean, this is how we, that editor is that that person we built inside that we learn how to write, what to do. But um, it's get that editor can really impede these raw notes, the magical language. Mm-hmm. Like if you once you get ahead of that editor with this enough speed, the it just opens up mm-hmm. before you this amazing feast of language. So that's what my goal is always to mm-hmm. do. Not efficient, not part of the factory, no. not under the control of the editor. So you've got these notes, you've got these, this, this disobedient, uh, uh, unlined against the line language. And then what, what's the process like for you of how it becomes the poems? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I do after I've completed all my handwritten notes, I will take it to the computer and open a Word document. And what I do is I open up the Word document and click on it to make sure it's ready to be used. And then shut the screen light off. Have my feet flat to ground myself. Position my fingers on the keys, the keyboard, and then close my eyes and type as fast as I can for five minutes. Hmm. And then I turn the screen light back on and begin transferring the handwritten notes. I pick right, right where I left off. It's one unbroken document. And... When I get to the midway point of the handwritten notes, I pause and repeat that blind speed typing. And then I turn the screen light back on again and finish transferring the handwritten notes. Then at the very end, I do another five minutes of blind speed typing. Now, this is based on research on the human brain that I've been reading about, about how memories are actually formed. We've wasted entirely too much time in our culture separating the mind from the body. There's no such separation. The mind is the body. The brain is an actual physical thing. And we have physical evidence now of what thoughts look like. So what I'm doing is, so that first bit of five minute speed typing is just unleashing whatever I happen to have on me right now, you mm-hmm. know, in my as well, language. But that second and particularly the third bouts of speed blind speed typing they are enriched by me seeing the handwritten notes and as I'm transferring them, I'm reliving the ritual in my mind. So all of that language from the raw notes gets compounded then for the speed typing later mm-hmm. and the midway point and at the end, if that makes sense. And sometimes the poems come entirely from those speed typing of reliving the notes so for instance a tiny little a tiny little poem in my new book mm-hmm. is the result the remains of a dozen or more pieces of single spaced printer paper from the computer and that's all the like i'll use 
2% of the language, mm. which completely freaks out novelists when I'm around novelists <laughs> because they're really all about accumulating words. And I shouldn't say that. That's terrible. Novelists get aff- offended when I say that. But they really do have, talk about their word count over dinner at these residencies, mm-hmm. like how many words that they – fine. I mean, I'm not saying anything against it. I'm just saying it's just a very, very different way of approaching the language. And one of the things I love so much about your work is the way that the poems, when they appear on the page, do not, they're not left justified. They're in all different shapes. Um, They seem, they sometimes seem close to what we sometimes call concrete poems as if they are in the shape of something recognizable. But usually they, they have an organic um, some of them, when I see them, make me laugh and smile. They're very playful. Um, they, I don't. It's hard to describe. Well, everyone has to go buy your books and read them and, and enjoy them for themselves. But where where does that process come in? So you you've culled the language. You've 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 d- d- once you've um, gone from let's say the fourteen pages to the to the smaller poem. Does it go through multiple drafts and how does it end up? how it looks so beautifully on the page. Yeah, many drafts. I mm-hmm. love editing. Mm-hmm. I love living with the poem, making it, shaping it. I, I kind of don't really like ending poems, you know. I feel like we don't anyway. I feel like we abandon them. We don't really finish them, if that makes I don't even know how, if that makes sense. But I feel like poems are never finished. They're just abandoned. Mm-hmm. And you move on to the next one. Because you, you could keep working on it. And some poets who I really love, like Alyssa Seguin, she wrote this... Peter Gizzi published a chapbook of hers in oblique editions called, uh, goodness, what is it called? F- um, four quartets? Hmm. Oh no, it's quintets. And it's the and it's these and it's a series of poems she's just constantly rewriting all of her life. I love that. But you could do that. <clears throat> the shapes the poems take. I swear I don't have any answer except to say that I surrender. Huh. I think the spirits who are speaking to me shape them. And, on, and before I would do these rituals, I was very much into that left margin. Like the Book of Frank is all left margin. Right. Wait, were you writing the Book of Frank poems before the 2005 mm-hmm. um, Oh, yeah, epiphany? that started in the 90s, early yeah, 90s. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I wrote, wrote that for 18 years, so it's before and after right. and during. After, Interesting. Before and after. It, can you tell the difference in the in the poems uh, that, that are part of that project that were after the epiphany about the factory and the, the relationships of poems to the factory? Well, I have to say this. As far as the Book of Frank is concerned, no, because that was a singular conversation mm-hmm. that was um, being spoken through to me uh-huh. to write down. However... And now I'm going to contradict that and say some of those poems in that book were actually um, me arguing with people. For instance, there's one poem in the book where there's a giant eating things with her vagina. And that comes right out of huge arguments I was having with gay men as a kid, as a young person in Philadelphia. Because, you know, I ran away as a teenager for many reasons, one, to be a poet but also because I needed to be in a safe place for being queer. Mm. And I was very naive as a teenager thinking that all lesbian and gay people were uh, against misogyny and racism and transphobia, and boy, was I wrong. Mm. It was very naive of me. 
And I found out when I would be alone with gay men at, at a party, the most horrific misogynistic things would be said. Things that I don't want to repeat and things that I've not ever heard any other in any other setting. Hmm. I you just abysmal things. And I would get in fights and I would say, you know, if it weren't for the lesbians, there wouldn't be a gay and lesbian movement. The lesbians have done all of the work, all of the work. Politically, emotionally, you name it. And they and not only that, when the AIDS ed- epidemic came the lesbians were there more than anybody and i always want to honor them in the the community because they don't they they're always like treated like third class citizens i mm. think anyway it bothers me to this day um so that was that was a poem where i was like here you go kevin you know <laughs> like you're afraid of the vagina here's the vagina coming to eat, you know uh-huh eat park benches and so things like that are coming up uh-huh Frank is often Frank is not somebody I like right. that character. I mean, he's a horrible human being, but he answers to a lot of things. And also, there are some biographical things, and so it's a mishmash. But it comes together as one story. Are you? Do you imagine ever doing a a project like that? Project is is a weird word to use in no, that in the sense. But uh, again, like the, your last few books have been the new somatic rituals and then the poems that that come out of the notes that you take during those rituals um do you have a a thought of ever going back to a uh, a different kind of uh yeah to something that's more like the book of frank or or that's entirely different than the somatic rituals and poems yeah i don't really feel a, a desire to do anything like the book of frank ever again i there were a lot of those poems and people who liked that book. I mean, the Danish translation just came out a few days ago and there was a book party in Copenhagen. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's it's, it's 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 interesting to come from people who don't read or appreciate literature to have a book translated into more than half a dozen languages now and things. That's kind of crazy and amazing and magical to me. The real magic for me isn't winning the awards and being published so much as the fact that I come from who I come from and where I come from and that I was able to experience and discover that poetry is there for you. Because mm-hmm. most people I think, most people I meet come to it because it was encouraged in some way. Me, it was just out of necessity from needing to like occupy my time out there along the highway selling flowers. But um, I do say this, the current large project I'm doing, Ritual, uh, Resurrected Sync Vibration, is in that vein because mm. it's a very long um, – there will be 108 poems, I think, by the time it gets finished. So this is a really big one. 108 poems from a single ritual. That I'm doing over and over again. Wow. Yeah, this uh, ritual involves – so do you mind me talking about that ritual? I, I love you talking about all these things. I'm going to move the mic a tiny bit closer to you. Oh, okay. So this ritual comes from me uh, reading. I'm I'm an animal rights activist. I've been so I I mean I grew up hunting and I grew up eating meat. It was just very natural. That's how I was raised. But I became macrobiotic in 1988, and this very dear friend of mine, the poet Jay Pinsky, who's sort of a macrobiotic guru and a poet as well. He wrote haiku. In fact, I have one of his haiku memorized. Uh, it goes like this. Uh, let me see if I get it right. Oh, yeah. Okay. To my socks, 
my shoes must seem like the end of the universe. Isn't that nice. great? Yeah. He's great. I love Jack. <laughs> so I, I became vegan, became vegan mm-hmm. um, and was helping many, many. Um, I was the only, uh, there was a gay and lesbian macrobiotic, back, macrobiotic cooking class. And um, there, I was the only HIV uh, negative man in the class. And all of those other men are still alive. They don't do medication. Some of them are now testing negative, as far as I've been told. It's just amazing. So I learned a lot in that 10-year study of macrobiotics. And it also turned me into an animal rights activist. And, and the new book also has some rituals around that as well, as well as um, dealing with these anti-queer laws that are upon us again mm-hmm. like this november 2018 we're seeing half a dozen states with these really vicious anti-lesbian gay transgender laws massachusetts is surprising to a lot of people massachusetts has this really mean referendum that i don't want to get i'm, I'm, de- I'm derailing the but whole you thing. know what i think uh do take a minute and talk about that because i think that's really important it's upsetting yeah i'm going to massachusetts tomorrow is it to a ballot visit- measure or a, a- what it what it's on the ballot yeah. it's a referendum to try to overturn the senate bill that uh, protects gay and lesbian people from discrimination in hotels restaurants etc so they want to get rid of that so they can mm. so they can evict us from these places which this <clears throat> this is stakes this is state sanctioned violence the very fact that this referendum exists is violent because the it, that that alone is it whether it passes or not, I mean, of course, I don't want it to pass, but the fact that it is there and that thousands of people signed petitions to get them to get this on the ballot is very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 been a terrible time. The new book has three political action somatic poetry rituals. Hmm. One of them's called Queer Bubbles, where I was in. So the HB two law which was in North Carolina under the um, time period of Governor Pat McCrory. So all these, it's these Christian extremists who are the problem, you see. And I'm not trying to damn, damn all Christians, but there are, there's, a, there's a certain number of them that are just out of their minds. And they, you, they wield their their religion with such violence. You know, Billy Graham recently died, and it broke my heart to see so many people I respect talking about, oh, what a great man he was. Like, what are you talking about? He was such an enemy to my community. Yeah. I absolutely refused to allow anybody to say anything nice about him in my presence. I was, I mean, I voted for Hillary Clinton, but it broke my heart at Nancy Reagan's funeral when she got up there and said that she cared for people with AIDS? That's a lie. It's an absolute lie. I was so angry that she said that. Um, I refuse to allow these these lies to be told, to, for that history to be changed, because we were alone. Mm. In fact, act up as a result of that aloneness. Anyway, let me, let me get back to this ritual. Yes. I don't, I don't want to, because I could spend hours being angry about this. Okay. So I forget where I was at with this, but so basically, it was as an animal rights activist, I'm I'm on top of these things uh, about what's going on, and 
I was reading the reports from the um, the uh, World Wildlife Association. They had, they had looked at the study and they had uh, pretty much declared that we've lost close to 60% of all the wild creatures on the planet in the past four decades. Well, this decade, we're talking about 1970 to 2010, that study, and now it's 2018, so mm-hmm. you've got to keep adding on. Things are escalating. The Guardian newspaper published an article roughly a month ago claiming that 75% of the flying insects in Europe have vanished in the past 25 years. That's extraordinary because that ecological hole is, well, I mean, it's just a disaster because it just affects everything. Every every aspect of an, an, an ecology is affected by something like that. So, but the thing is to lose as much as 60% of the wild creatures on the planet is extraordinary to find out. And... So what I'm thinking about is ecopoetics. I'm thinking about ecopoetics as, you know, this um, amazing. I mean, there's so many great new anthologies that have just recently come out um, containing um, things on critical writing as well as a collection of poetry. Uh, Angela Hume has this great thing. She just – a lot's going on. Jonathan Skinner, amazing um, – Amy King and uh, well Brenda Hill. I'm just thinking about all these people. Um, um, Heidi at oh Heidi is amazing down in University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. But and I also have to say I really loved the in Berkeley, California, the Ecopoetics Conference a handful of years ago. That was so good. Um, but so anyway, but the thing is, I'm thinking about Ecopoetics as. You know, thinking about degraded soil, air, and water, but also vibrational absence. That when a species leaves the planet, they take all of their sounds with them. Their heartbeat, their breath, their footfall, their fluttering, their gallop, their cries, their songs, all of it's gone. Silence. And the more that they leave the planet, this this desert of sound is rising around us. And we're filling it in with this din of humanity, our cars, our bombs, our drones. The United States is involved in seven wars in the Middle East. We are killing thousands of civilians. We've killed over a thousand civilians in Pakistan alone with our drones. We're not even supposed to be at war with Pakistan. Over 200 of those real live human bodies were, un, were ch- little children. And that's not under Trump. That's under the Obama administration. And I voted for that man twice. Anyway, it's a disaster. And literally. And so to have all these creatures disappearing, I'm also thinking about it like this. I was born January 1st, 1966. So I'm thinking about being this infant and that my infant cells were proliferating with this wild organic vibration on the planet which is now more than half gone. So I'm thinking about children being born in 2018, being born on a more mechanized vibration, a more human world, whereas my cells were um, very, it was very different. I mean, thinking about things like, in 1970, there were 25,000 white rhinos in the wild. In In 2018, there are, only three left on the planet, and none in the wild. They're all in separate zoos. There's a lot of that right now, a lot of twos and threes and ones, creatures that can't possibly um, come back. 
we're living at this at this hinge of history that is startling so but thinking too about like i think we need to start be talking about the generation gap in a new way i think we need to start thinking about the very cellular change because children born on a planet who who's more than half of their wild organic vibration is gone those cells have a very different vibrational pattern of different frequency so that's something we need to start considering what i'm doing with this ritual i'm i've been gathering uh, extinct and endan- very endangered species sounds that you can find on the internet. I think about these entomologists, mammologists, ornithologists gathering all this data over the years, thinking that they're studying these creatures, but they really were creating tombs mm. because these creatures only exist on the internet now. So what I do is I, I drive around the United States a lot and I, I have... Um, I, my goal is to go to all 50 states and to lie on the ground because I do believe the United States is the the great um, perpetrator of this problem. I think about manifest destiny. You know, I begin this ritual on the doorstep of Walt Whitman in Camden, New Jersey. Mm. He was an unapologetic racist. He wrote some of the most vicious racist um, essays and articles. His prose is breathtakingly upsetting. Mm. Um, I, he hides it all in the poetry, mostly, except for the Pioneer, O Pioneer poem, where he's basically valorizing the um, the West and the extermination of the Native people. Um, but that's, that's a whole other issue. So I'm on his doorstep, and across the street from his home in Camden is a state-of-the-art prison, high-rise prison with barbed wire. And every afternoon, these young, Afri- mostly African-American and Latina mothers come with their children. They're using their homemade sign language to speak to the men in these very thin windows, and then they go away crying. So I, you know, he was a cheerleader for Manifest Destiny. He and, and so the idea of that is that I'm then going forward into I'm headed west. And wherever I'm at, I take time and I lie on the ground on a blanket and and have my little speakers play off my iPod these sounds of these creatures. And I'm filling my body with these sounds. And a component to this writing, so there are 108 poems I'm working on. I'm thinking that's how many poems there will be. It might be less, I don't know. Besides that kind of writing, there are other kinds of writing that I don't normally do, mm-hmm. like journaling. Can I can I ask a few questions about the ritual? And then I want to hear about oh, the yeah. journaling for sure. Is there a significance to the 108, to the number 108? Oh, I love that number. I love that number. It's a magical number. I think about that number as an equation of its own spiritual kind of equation, that the one goes into the zero, the void, the om, and then on the other side of that unknown, you hit the eight, which is this perfect balance, right? Eight is designed if you, you know, unless you make two circles, but it should be like if it's one unbroken line, the eight, it means as above, so below. So the energy above is the same as the energy below. So it's balance, a really good balance, the number eight. It's two fours. Four is solid. Four is a block. Mm. 
So it's sharing that space, those two blocks, these two fours. And what you get when you hit the one went to the eight is a nine. And the number nine is the epiphany, like that, like mm. a click. So the nine is designed so that the energy enters the stem at the bottom and it flows up and circulates in the crown chakra. So you get nine is like a, an awareness. Nine is indestructible. If you multiply anything to nine, it heals back into nine. Like two plus two times nine is 18. One plus eight is nine. You know, you can keep going. Three times nine is 27. Two plus seven is nine. You can't break nine. So nine is unbreakable. And what I like about that, it means that whatever spiritual access that you've gained along the way doesn't get lost. Okay. I'm glad I'm glad I asked. Yeah, thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when was the moment um, when you were in Camden and do you have any sense of how long in chronological time um, this series, this ritual will will last in the 108 poems? Yeah, I'm not sure how long much how much longer it will last. I'm I'm assuming a couple more years mm -hmm. because I want to go to all the other states. I want to get to all 50 states, and I've never been to Alaska, or Hawaii. Those are the two I haven't been to yet. There are other components to the ritual besides lying on the ground. I also sleep in my car in Walmart parking lots. That's another part of it. Because I look at Walmart as the results of Manifest Destiny, like the sort of end result of the sort of idea of empire, this like weird idea of the American, U.S. American. I like to say U.S. American. I don't like to just say American. Uh -huh. This U.S. American empire, which... You know, the thing that I, I like using the Walmarts for is because, first of all, it's an experiment unlike any other as far as, like, consumption, retail, all that. There are 9,000 Walmart stores in the lower 48 states alone, meaning that it's extremely easy to find one, to sleep in the parking lot, or you just pull over and there's going to be one. Your GPS will just type in Walmart. It'll take you to the nearest one. Sometimes there are more than one to choose from. The smaller Walmarts have um, as much as 250,000 items, and the large ones or the super Walmarts have as much as half a million or more items on, on site. So what I do is I sleep, and the thing is, too, that I'm finding out in my road notes includes this, is that, you know, I think Sam Walton's, you know, the guy who creates Walmart, his idea is that um, he sees what's coming. He sees the, the baby boomers are about to retire. I'm Generation X, so it's the generation before mine. The baby boomers are getting ready to retire. They're going to get their Winnebagas, and they're going to want to go to RV camps. He's like, look, you can stay for free in my parking lot, and in the morning you can come in, and we've got Dunkin' Donuts. Or all, there's all kinds of food you can buy and toothpaste and you know, buy your supplies for the day, fresh fruit and vegetables. They've got organic. So you have this like whole plan. What he didn't count on was the fact that there are all these disenfranchised homeless people that he helped create. And so we have homeless people in these parking lots and living in their car. Sometimes entire families crammed into cars with signs in the windshield that say, we need baby formula, we need diapers. There's a man I've seen in a couple different Walmarts around the country who has a sign that says in his windshield, like, I need beer and cigarette money. He's kind of amusing. But it's quite astonishing what's going on. So there's that. And when I wake up in the morning, I also then will put on, I'll listen to the extinct animals and walk in a spiral formation through a Walmart and then kneel in the middle and write. 
And the thing is about Walmart is like you're never going to see that many products in one place unless you're in a warehouse. But it practically is a warehouse. So it's just full of color. And like you get that this intersection of like color and temperature. All these things are going on all the time when you're looking at things. And um, also the off-gassing of all the ga- the like pla- polyethylene and all this compressed wood particles and stuff is present. What's interesting to me about Walmart is the the dimension, the sort of other dimension of it, because the topography is always different, right? You if you're at the Walmart and um, outside of Pasadena, it's going to look one way, or but if you're up in Missoula or like if you're in or wherever New Jersey, the the landscape outside is very very different. But as soon as you enter, you enter that Walmart dimension where they're always the same. There's that weird music playing. They have the same uniforms. There's a greeter. Um, yeah. What's the response um, to you when you're doing, you're listening to the extinct animal audio in the middle of the Walmart? Or Well, nobody really knows because I've got the headphones on. Uh-huh. But what I do do, what I have tried sometimes, say I really want to do the ritual, the lying down part in uh, human traffic. Mm. So when I get thrown out of places, like I was thrown out of the Michigan Visitor Center, because they're like, you can't do that. You know, they would like be throwing me out. I was lifted off the ground at a Walmart for lying on the ground in the Walmart doing it. And huh. I wasn't, um, I wasn't doing it where the checkout is. I was doing it. There's not a lot of traffic. It was like where shampoo and greeting cards were, you know. Uh-huh. But yeah, I was physically thrown out by these two men. So, yeah, I mean, there's that. But that's different. Yeah. When I'm walking around the Walmart, nobody knows when I'm – they just think I'm shopping. Uh-huh. It's hard to get a spiral because there's no such thing as a spiral, really. You ha- That's the thing that I've discovered is that, you know, as you're walk- trying to create a spiral, there's a grid pattern that they've created for you to shop. So there, so my spiral is kind of weird, but it becomes one. So <clears> – <throat> In your life, you have some rituals like this one that are continuing for quite a long time. Then you have other rituals like the one we talked about before with um, having the crystal pressed on your third eye and swallowing a smaller crystal. And that one lasted over uh, like a series of two months. Two months. Um, and then you have some that are daily, uh, like that, that might only last one day or one time, like the bubbles. Yeah. And and then you're also um, so you just were mentioning, and I'm so fascinated fascinated to hear about this. So in your class just now, the students each came up with their own ritual, or did they make rituals for each other? Or well, when I have the um, privilege of teaching on an extended period of time, I like to set aside an hour at the end of each class where we have a group of the students that the whole class we collectively build a ritual for that group for like each person Uh i want each person my only care in these workshops is that everybody leaves understanding that they can always write Mm. 98 percent of all writers especially poets stop to never do it come back to it it's simple and nobody's excited nobody wants to stop I mean, maybe they do. I've never met anybody who wants to. I've run into a lot. When I was a teenager in Philadelphia, I had a couple hundred peers 
of artists of all kinds. By the time we were in our late 20s, about half of everybody had stopped. By the time I was in my late 30s, I was virtually alone. And now in my 50s, it's very hard for me to find people my age who are still doing their work. Mm. It's just a, it's just the fact that this culture we're living in is designed to destroy us creatively. What the rituals afford, which wasn't my original intent for it, but it turns out that it's very helpful, is that it proves that writer's block is a myth. Mm. That really all writer's block is is the world takes over. You you know that space that you knew how to get to to access your creativity, your creative core. You've you've lost the access points to it. You don't know how to get to it anymore because of the routines. It's very routine driven. Capitalism is all about routines of the worst possible kinds. And um, I mean, capitalism is the absolute enemy of created creativity in so many ways i could go on for hours about what i mean by that but the fact is it is and these people you know people just get lost so what the ritual show is it shows people that we can always find our way back mm. and create that space to jump start it again and you get writing again mm-hmm. almost immediately and if the if the kind of overarching common goal of all the rituals you know is to keep going and to and to keep writing and to keep being in the present and to keep feeling and thinking um but then i would assume that you know maybe one student might have a particular pressing need maybe to access a different kind of language than she's ever come into contact with or to um overcome a depression or so does the do students state their goal first or do they first come up with like what what they how like where they want their bodies to be and what they want their bodies to be doing well the way i like to guide it is to begin asking some very simple questions what's going on in your life i think it is important to tackle the hardest things because if i can get you to write inside the hardest things the hardest things meaning very tedious things or depressing things, upsetting things. If I can get you to write inside those places, well, then you're free. Mm. You'll be able to see that you can write anywhere, anytime you want. Because the fact of the matter is it's it's infinite possibilities out there for what we could not leave this room we're sitting in right now for a year and never begin to exhaust the possibilities of writing with this room and mm. what to do with it. Um, so... I ask these questions, you know, like, what's going on in your life? And by those answers they give, I start giving suggestions and I look around the room. And this class at Columbia has been great uh, because the students are very bright and eager and smart and talented. And every class has just been magical because the students open up and um, really help build this for one another Mm. and so they've been working on this all semester you know the getting these rituals plus we've been doing an ongoing ritual where we start in the beginning and then we keep adding each class we add a new ingredient Mm. and things like going to the library and uh, going to a part of because I really every time I visit a school I get the students to go to the library I feel like the libraries are very lonely since the internet's I just feel like I go to these libraries in these schools and there's nobody in them and especially where the book, I mean, there might be students like sitting in the, in the cafe desk areas or whatever, yeah, yeah. doing it, but they're not actually looking at the books, it seems. Mm. So to get them to touch those books is important to me because that's how I really learned to be a poet 
browsing the poetry section at the Free Library in Philadelphia, this massive, massive library, this undertaking that Benjamin Franklin started, you know, this lending library idea. And um, I discovered so many poets by doing that. Like Charlotte Delbeau, was a, she was like a hero of mine. She mm. was the, uh, in World War II, she was the um, a courier for the poet Louis Argon in occupied Paris when the Nazis were there. And, and they eventually captured her, the SS captured her and sent her to Auschwitz. And um, mm. her poems, D-E-L-B-O, Charlotte Delbeau, her poems are very difficult to read because they're harrowing accounts of what the Nazis would put her and others through. But it's worth reading because she has these crystallized moments of beauty where she'll say things like this. This is a quote. Oh, well, I mean the English translation quote. And finally, it would be too stupid for so many to have died and for you to live and do nothing with your life. That's mm. why it's important to read Charlotte Delbo. But I wouldn't have known about her if I hadn't been just browsing the bookshelves. Mm. Nobody's teaching Charlotte Delbo. Mm -hmm. So, but the thing is, getting the students into the library and they get a book off the shelf, and, and then they ask it a question and close their eyes and open and close the book nine times and then read the page, and then use that as like an ingredient to their ongoing ritual. Mm. Are there ever times when you will try to steer a student away from? making a ritual that might include self-destructive behavior or stuff that might be destructive to the environment or to another person? Uh, honestly, so far, nobody's ever, that's never happened. Mm. So yeah, nobody's ever, so I don't know what to say about it. That's never come up. So Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, can we talk for a second about the other kinds of writing that you do? You were about to talk about journaling, and oh, other, yes. yeah. Well, the 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 resurrect the resurrect extinct vibration book. I'm starting to think of it as a book. Finally, is this now, one thing? None of these are in other books yet. No. Okay, got it. No, I mean some of the poems have been published in magazines, but that's about it. I think because I've seen you, I've seen uh, I've. I've, I've read you talking about this ritual and the extinct animal, animals, but this is going to be a separate book of these. It's yeah. going to be the first time where it's one book, one ritual, one mm -hmm. book, and then the resulting poems. So it'll be like the beginning of the book will be the ritual, what I did, and then the poems, and then the road notes. And the road notes, these, this journaling is um, concerned with a lot of things. Well, I'm always talking to people where I'm at, asking them about their local water, fresh water sources, and where the animals are, what kind of animals, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, and sometimes it's conversations that I have with people. You know, where I wear a lot of glitter and nail polish and things, and I was in Western Iowa at the Kellogg Museum, and I was doing the ritual outside the entrance to the museum, and a little girl, maybe four-year-old, came over and I had my sunglasses, giant sunglasses on and she looks down at me and at, as I'm lying on the ground she says and she asks are you dreaming this is verbatim this conversation and I looked over the top of my sunglasses I pulled them down and I said yes I'm dreaming of beautiful haunted birds hmm. and she's like that's cool you know she's like you like and we, then she saw my nail polish the glitter she's like you want to talk about glitter and her mom's yelling crystal get over here <laughs> And her mother gets increasingly annoyed as we keep doing this. I said, your mom's calling you. She's like, yeah, I heard her. And I called her a rebel. And she's like, what's that? I said, go ask your mom. Mm. I said, keep being a rebel. So there's that. 
Uh-huh. But also concerns about the fact that I'm actually enjoying the ritual. Guilt huh. over enjoying it. And I mean enjoying it. I mean, I assumed that it would be depressing. I, I was preparing. I made provisions for what would happen if I'm doing this on the road and I get really depressed. Huh. But the funny thing is, it's not that funny, but the strange thing is, is that I'm elated after hearing these sounds of these creatures. Huh. My theory is that my cells are drinking these sounds, these vibrations in, like a conversation with an old friend. That's the only, that's the only answer I have. But, I, but I'm anything but upset and feel really happy at the end of it. Hmm. So it's that's upsetting. And I'm braiding that guilt conversation within myself with the guilt of surviving AIDS, you know, mm. testing negative and like not believing I was negative and getting tested again and it's still negative and realizing that I'm not going to die and that all these people around me are dying. And, you know, I was busy with my friend Aisha Bay. Aisha and I were making Essiac uh, formula to help people survive AIDS and going to macrobiotics and like all these things. And, I mean, back in the 80s and 90s, it just wasn't working. Mm. You know, it seemed like everybody was dying no matter what you did. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so surviving that and seeing all those people die was hard to, like, keep going and to be okay with being alive. Mm. So there's that. So there's that. that. All that's going on in the road notes. Another part of the writing is cataloging. Mm. So when I see dead animals along the highway, roadkill, I hate that word, that term. I think it's a compound noun, right? It's like roadkill. Yeah. I don't know. If Does autocorrect make you separate it? I haven't tried that. I don't know. I think it's considered one word, roadkill. <laughs> and of course it comes from the automobile, that word. And uh, as far as I know, that yeah, why isn't it called car kill? Yeah, good. Which still isn't exactly, good. Exactly. Yeah, it's the not road the road. Didn't, it's yeah. the kill. Uh, yeah. The road, the car. So I make little roadside memorials with plastic dollar dollar store flowers and little white tags that will say like, I'm thinking about one that happened in August. Uh, deer, hit and run victim, August twenty seventh, two thousand seventeen. Next of kin unknown. Hmm. Um. <clears throat> Originally, I was making little crosses, and my friend, Frank, the poet Frank Sherlock, was like, "Why are you Christianizing these animals?" I was like, "You're right." Huh. So it's just flowers on the guardrail now, you know, or whatever post. So that there's, there's that this cataloging, and the thing is, to keeping track of it is very strange because the roadkill, of course, I mean, changes depending where you're at. I mean, like I like in the I was in the uh, I was in the, um, uh, the Badlands. And there was a dead porcupine. That was new. But like, uh, you know, squirrels, raccoons, and then when you go down to the southwest, it becomes armadillos, things like that, you know. Are you alone usually when you're on these journeys? Mostly. Uh-huh. Not always. Mostly. And do you do them because you have to go somewhere and because you're invited to read or teach and so you, you, you plan your route? Or is this the, is the journey the destination? There's usually a reason. Mm-hmm. For instance, in April, I'm going to be at the Tucson uh, Poetry Festival. So I'll be driving from, I'm going to be soon be going in a couple of weeks to Wheaton College in yeah. Massachusetts to teach and perform. And then immediately leaving there, I just start driving right towards um, Tucson. And I'm going to stop in Denver on the way to visit friends and go down to Santa Fe. And then I'm going to 
Albuquerque, New Mexico, to interview Margaret Randall, the Pope Margaret Randall, but that's a whole other thing. But the goal is to get to Tucson. Mm. And so, yeah, there's always a reason. Mm-hmm. What's your? Where's your home base right now? Well, it's Athens, Georgia, but I'm never there. Huh. I'm interested in... in um, I don't have a, a smart, articulate question, but... One of the things so, that I mean, everything's been smart and articulate <laughs> well, yeah. from you. I don't know. Well, thank you. But um, I'm interested in aloneness and how much it's come up in our conversation and thinking about you um, on the side of the road gathering, you know, uh, selling flowers and being alone, thinking about you alone with Emily Dickinson's books, um, thinking about you um, alone with your crystals, um, <clears throat> and all, but also thinking about the way in which um, your work is so deeply social and connected and, and collaborative and part of, um, even if, it's, if it comes out of acknowledging the absence and, uh, you know, of uh, an extinct species or um, all of the losses that you've had to AIDS um, and to other to other things and there's so I don't I don't really know what to say about that but I think I, I hadn't really seen that relationship of your work in in quite that same way to aloneness and connection um, than to, than I did until right now and hearing you talk and I don't know if that's something that you think about if there's something that you feel like um, if you have a sense for yourself of what a healthy amount of aloneness and togetherness look like for you if you if you try to make sure that your rituals uh, bring you into contact or you're or 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 if you know that you're going to do a certain number of rituals that um, are going to really require a, a certain kind of solitude and separation if you'll then make sure to go stay with friends you know for a period of time or or if that's not something you think about at all well I do think about it a lot and I think that those that eight-year period of working for my mother along the highway as a child prepared me for being alone because I'm very used to it. Mm. It's not something that bothers me ever. I spend, there are days that I'll go driving because, you know, it takes me a dozen or so days to drive from like Boston to Seattle, for instance. And that's driving like five, six, sometimes seven hours a day. Mm. And I just, I really love being in the world alone. What do you do in the car while you're driving? Well, I have a little digital handheld recorder, tiny little thing that I love. And that is always sitting next to me for ideas and things that come up. And so there's that. And uh, yeah, mostly just thinking about my poems and writing and then more comes out into mm -hmm. that. And then in the evening, wherever I'm at, if I'm at the Walmart parking lot or if I'm in a hotel, I will um, transcribe that. Hmm. And oh, I, I can't believe that we've been talking for all this time and I didn't ask you to read anything. Hmm. Would you like to read either a ritual and a poem or some whatever you, whatever? Well, how about I just read from um, 
the two rituals I've talked about, the one of where I cured myself of depression and then the re- extinct animal piece. Wonderful. How's that? Yeah, fantastic. I have a quick question about that that I meant to ask before I forget, which sure. is um, the language that you use to describe the rituals, how much does that get edited? Do you feel, does that feel like a kind of, a finished product writing in the same way that the poems do? Are you talking about the prose section yeah. where I write about what I did? Yeah. That's the last thing I do. Huh. The least important thing to me is the is that little essay or whatever you want to call it. Sometimes they become essays, it seems. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm not interested in the prose at all, ever. But I have to do it. And when I, I wind up enjoying doing it, but it's not something I really look forward to doing. But I do get into it, yeah. you know, once I start writing it. Yeah, but what I do is I just take because you know the thing is too about these rituals, I um, I I mean I I, I often change the ritual as I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. So I have a sketch, like a little charcoal sketch of what I'm going to do, and then I, I keep it very porous. For instance, there's a new ritual in the new book called Denise Levertov versus Bruce Lee. This I is love an example. That one. <laughs> oh, thank you. Where I did the poet, the Black Mountain College poet Denise Levertoff is buried in this graveyard next adjacent to uh, Volunteer Park in Seattle. And I gave myself 27 minutes after crossing the threshold of the graveyard to find her grave. If I didn't find it, I had to spend an hour in writing and meditating and reading her poems in front of the grave where I was standing. What I did not know was that Bruce Lee is also buried there. And what that means is that very often, um, well, his super fans come from all over the world to visit this, to pay homage. And so what you'll have is, um, usually it seems like young couples, like a, a, a girlfriend with a cell phone taking a video of the boyfriend doing karate moves and making those caterwauling, those cat-like sounds. Right. So there's this Bruce Lee soundtrack in the background. So I don't believe in... I believe in accepting the elements. So uh, I don't I don't want to change that. That's it. That's what's going on. So I need to accept it. And so it just becomes part of it. That one became so much part of it that he wound up and Bruce Lee became part of the title. Right. He couldn't not, you know. And I say verses just to be funny because really it was great. The mm-hmm. whole thing was wonderful. But so, yeah, there's that. Okay, read. Oh. So I'll read a little bit from, I'll read a handful of poems from Mount Monadnock Transmissions. Mount Monadnock is this beautiful mountain in New Hampshire, right near McDowell Art Colony. What's, what studio were you in? Do you remember? Yeah, it was, it was called the, um, uh, it's it's what's a cirrhosis oh that's where my mom was oh it's an amazing cabin down jenny there. george was there when i was oh there. nice now, yeah. jenny george yeah okay, originally that was for that's... composers and then they opened it up to other writers i know what that i've only been inside three of them and that's one of them that i've been inside that's wild okay i loved it i really loved it and there was a bob what cat. time of year were you there in the fall yeah, it was great because the leaves were falling, and the leaves falling became part of the ritual, mm. having to meditate on the falling leaves each day, which was nice. I liked that. A spider's web is made of digested fly brains, wings, hairs, legs, tears, pheromones, attracting more flies. 
dissolving us into the endeavor of love. Hold me to your song, it is delicious. Hear you one more time in middle of night, tooth it open. Love all unloved parts without pause. Dear ghost flickering with flames that no longer hurt, deflated lungs expanding, you say they can only burn a faggot once. When you died the way you died, it was contaminating, a new danger of being lost and insecure. But reality can never be avoided forever. At the same moment, who is afraid of whom? The killers or my beloved? Or guilt of my continued song? Desire is not what we achieve. It's a knife often carving the wrong way or racking it in the alchemy of a mood. I should never trade youth for poetry's resonance of aging, but I can put every poem I ever wrote in a pile and burn them if you would appear on the other side. Your rapists were the last to taste you in this world. Their breath and terror down, down your neck keeps me up at night. But which page of the Bible says to burn the faggot after you force him to give you your pleasure? Each time I drink water drop from clouds, water they burned out of your body, I cut my hands to catch you. In the revenge dream, I behead one of them, spell your name on my face with his blood. The other is begging as I choke him, his neck as soft as your neck. I pull him off his knees, check for tattoos. Is it him? Is it you? I miss you. I love you. My need to attack your killers, this is where I failed you. I should give them a trophy, a faggot-killing trophy. They won. Jesus-loving faggot killers always win. How strong was my failure to keep you alive? I am sorry coming out the golden head of dandelions smashing through cement, universe expanding at cruel speed. Sorry hogs room in the stomach. A horizon we let into our eyes. Can only finish this poem with those eyes. Smash through cement. Lonely and sick with glory of the bloom. How about just three more? Or Go less? For it. Envelop crystal. Swallow crystal. Thrust crystal up my ass to distract from 10,000 worries. Few things tire me more than imagining reincarnation. A child struggling all over again to not favor war, not surrender to greed. The spirit of your flowers is my favorite shelter. We were in love is the main thing. Faintest green light entry pulls me forward. Whenever life is beautiful makes me think of you. Carry color of the forest to be with you, to belong to this world with you, to have what we have, and that is it. Yes, the present is between the past and future, but is too radical to be called the middle. Dear Earth, it is okay to not roll the stone back uphill. We rent memory storage in the world you left behind, Little wonder in this della broken treaties. Daisies bend under our slightest breath. You did not answer after you died. It 
is when I learned to be lonely everywhere, between dreaming and crying until it calcified and fell off. So how about I read a couple poems from the new, the Resurrect Extinct Vibration. Wonderful. So this is from, these are new poems. This is from the Extinct Animal Ritual. This, uh, I'll just read two of these. Wonderful. And the first one is called Camisado. And Camisado is a military term. And I first heard this uh, term in, um, a, in junior high school in history class. I remember it distinctly because of the way it was presented to the class. The teacher, this I forget his name now, this teacher, but anyway, he said, General George Washington's famous camisado was crossing the Delaware to kill the unsuspecting British while they're sleeping. We all know this story. But what he says is, he says it was a very brave act. And even as a kid, I was sitting here thinking, I don't think it's brave. I'm strategic, sure. Mm -hmm. But how is it brave to kill young British soldiers dreaming of fish and chips or whatever's going on in their dream. You know what I mean? It's just evil, really. I mean, killing people is evil, so whatever. It's nonsense. You wanna... Can I ask you a quick what? Um, the light keeps coming in and then um, going down, and next time the light comes in, can I take your photograph? You look so beautiful. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. Maybe a pic. How about a picture of both of us together? I love that. But if it, if, if it comes in again, I'll do one. Subtly. Oh, you can do whatever you want. Okay, sure. perfect. I just <laughs> wanted to ask for permission. <laughs> yeah, the natural light coming in here is really of nice. Course. Camisado. After breaking in, the wolf calmed the hens so he could take his time with them, twist them open until the right amount of memory fits into the song. Another high price for belonging. Poetry is the opposite of escape but makes this world endurable. How the smallest puddle reflects the entire sky. I return to every dream our minds talked us out of, trusting our math of the star, your hand around my shoulder. Poet, astronaut, you know I love you. I have no sense of failure when I'm with you. Everything matters because everything hurts someone somewhere as it is mattering. We became all we carried into the mast, migratory patterns given to the love again, a way to end the secrecy of suffering, cut a door in the wolf so we can retrieve our dead for a world that matters. So the last one is called On All Fours, I Am a Seat for the Wind. Most of my family's international travel is being sent to war. If we judge love, we can kill off anything, dragged by our hair across the days until they make their way inside our dreams, where we get to evict them. I want to thank the one who invented knocking on the door, but no one remembers their name to tattoo across my knuckles. I asked an archaeologist about first time she stuck a shovel in the ground. Her answer had same restorative powers as the gravediggers. When we die, we can no longer wipe the muck off, just lie there becoming shit of the world. 
Eat a chip of your own dried blood. Join me in the cannibal sunshine. Fully persuaded by the world through song, each morning a blue jay screams at edge of the clear-cut forest. I scream with her at the bleeding stumps, scream inside something borrowed like ocean, like skin. I want to see before I die a mink wearing a human scarf, skin from a handsome hairy leg. Ew. Oh my god, those are amazing. Thank you for Thank sharing you. those. Thank you so much, Rachel. Oh, um, I have two quick questions. And if you have anything else, you know, that you wish I'd asked you or that you always wish somebody asks and they never ask. But um, the first is, so I'm so happy or I'm so glad to hear that you don't have that movie playing in your mind um, of Earth and, and the police. And um, and I just wonder if you, what do you see or when you think of Earth now after this ritual, after this amount of time, what's what's there for you? Well, getting over that depression changed everything. The first thing it did for me was it woke me up to the fact that I needed to leave Philadelphia. I'd lived there for most of my life, over 30 years. Mm. But all those ghosts from all those men who died of AIDS, and I just, I can't be, it's a, it's a small enough city that you really, to have that many deaths, you just, the ghosts are everywhere. Mm. So I, it broke my heart to leave Philadelphia. I love that city. It taught me to love the world. Um, some very, very dear friends are, are there forever for me. But I, so there's that. I think about Earth in that context, that um, in a way he helped me leave. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And I will always love him. There's, so I, I have a very different relationship now with my memories of him, good ones. All that horror that I was going through with, uh, trying to get things accomplished, which I know are not going to change. But hmm. I mean, a documentary film came out and it didn't really change anything. Uh -huh. But the fact of the matter is it, um, I'm changed. And that's the thing I need to realize that the only thing that I really have any control over is my own life. And that helped me. That, that was a big lesson, frankly. Hmm. It's, this is so related to the second question, which is about what is currently giving you the energy that you need to do this work? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of joy in unexpected joy, even in the in the writing of these poems, which some might think, oh, that's going to be totally enervating and depressing. But it but it but that's not always the case. But, but where do you how do you recharge? How do you how do you get what you need to do this kind of work? Because I think it's, it's um, even if it contains joy, at least in my own experience, if you're if you're willing to go deep, if you're willing to, you know, get the lined paper and not write on the lines, there is a cost, and uh, it, it 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 can it can range from small to very very large. So how do you how do you get what you need to do to do that? Well, I feel very fortunate to have survived so much. I mean, I survived a town that was that basically drove me out, and um, when they discovered that I'm queer, and then 
survived AIDS, survived a boyfriend's murder. It's just this continuous and surviving a crisis in my writing. And I feel like all of these things have just helped strengthen my resolve about being here on the planet and wanting to be here and that this planet is worth fighting for. And also being vegan is a big thing. I mean, I this January 1st uh, was... So this January 1st was my 30th anniversary of being vegetarian. Wow. And that has a lot to do with it, especially my family. Um, they're, I'm Irish and Danish and just very unhealthy. Um, I'm in my 50s now, and my family in their 50s tend to be on a lot of medication and a lot of arthritis and aches and pains and the the not consuming of dairy and meat and wheat has been cut out and sugar mm. has completely changed my i mean i'm overweight still from the depression of slowly getting rid of all that but slowly which is the best way to do it mm. um healthier by consuming plants and you know you and just these rituals are a daily meditation so getting to deeply investigate the world each day and appreciating it better, it, it all, it's like climbing on itself. Mm. So like the, the more I stick with being healthy with diet and et cetera um, and, and continue doing the rituals, the healthier I am and the more energy I have and the more ideas that come. Mm. Wow. Um, anything else that you want to add or ask me or be asked? Well, I have to say I'm very excited about, do you know Shanna Compton? I do. Well, Shanna Compton was my first editor of my first book, um, Soft Skull Press, Deviant I know Propulsion. her work, I don't, and, I've, and we've met. I don't know, I, we're not, I don't know her well. She's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And she's got her own press now called Bloof Books. Oh, wow. And she is reprinting the collaborative book I wrote with my poet, my poet friend Frank Sherlock called The City Real and Imagined. So that's coming out very soon. Excellent. I'm What's the pub date for that? It's the spring sometime, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I also forgot to congratulate you on the Lambda. You're a finalist for the Lambda oh, Award. Yeah. And Thank you. Are you going to go to the to the gala? I won't be able to <gasps> because I'll be teaching in Denver at the uh -huh. Lighthouse Poetry Festival. Okay. But, um, but yeah, I'm very excited about that. It's a big deal. I mean, hundreds of books came out, and to be a handful of finalists is like winning just for that alone. So, And it's such great company. And it's, Oh, it's yeah, really it's great amazing. company. I want to read all of those books, the yeah. finalists. It's very exciting. I've already read some of them, but it's very exciting. What do you exciting. think about the ca their categories? I always wondered well, about that. Well, I don't really feel like I fit into any of them. Yeah. Because I'm, yeah, there should be a, I don't know what to tell you. But yeah. I'm just grateful. Yeah. Oh, I also say... Um, Julian Berlaski is also a, a, a finalist for the a Lambda a trans transgender poetry. Julian Berlaski's book of Mongrelitude, and also in gay male poetry is um, Cedar Saigo. Ah, oh, I love that new book. I I I feel like um, all of these books that I'm a finalist with are it's it's I feel very lucky. Yeah, because there are a lot of books that I assumed would be on that finalist list that were not. Mm. You know, there's just so much. We're living in an amazing time for poetry. People who occasionally will meet people who only read dead poets or just want to talk about Shakespeare, and I just find that so tedious. I feel like there's never been a better time to be alive, frankly, mm. for poetry. 
so much going on. Well, I'm very grateful for your work, and I'm very grateful. I think I I know and and suspect that it's even bigger than what I know that so many of the poets that I have read recently and just have just gone straight to my heart have also been really influenced and inspired by you. So I feel sometimes that I'm reading you when I'm not reading you, and I feel very grateful for that. Thank well, you. thank you. I'm grateful that you invited me to do this podcast. Yeah. I can't wait to... It's going to be so exciting. Thank you. Okay. Uh, all right. This has been episode 49 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. Commonplace producers are Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and James Ciano. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music performed and written by Moses Zucker-Gorin, design work by Eitan Darwish. Many thanks to Wave Books and Yale University Press for donating books to this episode's raffle, and to all the presses who support Commonplace. Many thanks to our patrons, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening, and take care.